when we found you and, and your podcast, it was like, okay, this is what we should have done the first time. It's like the properties make sense the day you buy them. Welcome to this week's edition of Flashback Friday, your opportunity to get some good review by listening to episodes from the past that Jason has handpicked to help you today in the present and propel you into the future. Enjoy. Welcome to Creating Wealth with Jason Hartman. During this program, Jason is going to tell you some really exciting things that you probably haven't thought of before and a new slant on investing. Fresh new approaches to America's best investment that will enable you to create more wealth and happiness than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made, multi-millionaire who not only talks the talk, but walks the walk. He's been a successful investor for 20 years and currently owns properties in 11 states and 17 cities. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to financial freedom. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show. This is episode number 264, and this is your host, Jason Hartman. Thanks again for joining me today. Today, I'd like to skew toward the practical side of the ledger, and we are going to have a guest talking about the subject of mortgage financing. And maybe the next show, I just, boy, I've, I've been into some great books lately, folks. And maybe on the next show, we will do the interview on Abundance, which is a book I'd highly recommend. Just recorded that interview with one of the authors, Steve. Steve Kotler yesterday, and the book is entitled Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think. Highly recommend that book. So maybe we'll, we'll do that one for episode number 265. But today, I want to talk about some practical stuff, the good old subject of obtaining financing, how you can do it, how you can overcome the challenges and the difficulties, and experience the wonderful benefits of what I call inflation-induced debt destruction. So that's what we'll do with our guest today here in just a moment. And I should also mention and thank a lot of our clients who have been recording episodes with me lately, where we've just been collecting more and more practical case studies, client experiences, hearing what they're doing to build their real estate portfolio and have a much, much more abundant and successful and easier, including passive income, financial life as the time passes. Really, what this is all about is it's putting time on your side. When you hear the news stories about the government overspending and you hear all the bad news in the world, all of that really pretty much most of it, at least, if not all, plays into good things when you follow my plan for investing in income properties. That will all be available to you on this episode in future episodes as well. And I just want to remind you, we've got a couple of events we will announce very soon. We're just getting the details finalized for an income property tour and a Creating Wealth in Today's Economy seminar. Our first time doing it on the East Coast. Yes, it will be in one of my favorite markets right now, Atlanta, Georgia. And we will do the same thing we did in St. Louis, but we'll do it in Atlanta, where we'll arrive for a reception on Friday evening. 
probably in late September, somewhere around there. And then we'll we'll have the reception Friday night. We'll have the Creating Wealth in Today's Economy boot camp all day Saturday. And then we'll have a property tour on Sunday. So this will be in the Atlanta market. And look for details on that real soon, soon to be announced. And as soon as we get everything finalized, it'll be on the website, jasonhartman.com in the events section. And then we also have our semi-annual Meet the Masters of Income Property event coming up, and we have not finalized our location for that, whether it'll be Southern California or Phoenix, but I will say that we are going to have a very different Meet the Masters event this time. You know, we keep kind of playing with it and and seeing what works better, but what's going to be different about this event is not really the format, but the speakers themselves. And we're doing this especially for you regulars who come to every single Meet the Masters event. We just love seeing you come twice a year and and coming back all the time. But what we're going to do is we're really going to mix up the speakers this time and have some different speakers, some different topics, so that we keep you stimulated and thinking in new directions about your portfolio and about your retirement and your passive income and building wealth in your real estate business. So look for that on future shows. I'll keep today's monologue really short and hopefully do a longer one next time. And you guys tell me you like my long monologues. So (laughs) Uh, some people say I go too long, but I'm going to skew toward the longer ones because I, I, I get more people saying they like the long ones and then having the guest after that. So let's go right into our guest today where we talk about mortgage financing and exploiting the great lending opportunities. You know, as one of our affiliates and prior show guests, Randy, always says, Most people think of the property as the asset and the mortgage the liability, when in some ways, it's really the other way around. So let's talk about that mortgage asset here. And we'll be back with that in just a moment. What's great about the shows you'll find on jasonhartman.com is that if you want to learn about investing in and managing income properties for college students, there's a show for that. If you want to learn how to get noticed online and in social media, there's a show for that. If you want to know how to save on life's largest expense, there's a show for that. And if you'd like to know about America's crime of the century, there's even a show for that. Yep, there's a show for just about anything. Only from jasonhartman.com or type in Jason Hartman in the iTunes store. It's my pleasure to welcome Steve to the show. Steve is one of the top mortgage people that we work with, and he finances properties all over the country and has vast amount of experience in the mortgage business. So it's great to have him here to talk about that all-important aspect of financing. Steve, how are you? Welcome. Good, Jason, and thank you very much for the opportunity. Good, my pleasure. First of all, where are you located? Seattle, Washington. Beautiful place when it's not raining. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good point. It is a beautiful place, though. So, Steve, first of all, give us a little background. You know, how long have you been in the mortgage business? Um, I'm an old timer. I've been in the business for approximately 25 years. Okay. And are you a mortgage broker, a mortgage banker, or do you work for a bank directly? You know, maybe talk to the listeners for just a moment about some of the the reason I asked you that. I mean, I know what you are, but for the benefit of the listeners, talk about the different types of mortgage people there are out there. Well, you have our company, we're a mortgage banker. We're probably a little bit different than some of the other companies in that not only do we, you know, fund our loans and do the underwriting here, we also service. 
the majority of our portfolio. And so that, that kind of sets us, you know, sets us above with some of the other folks. We handle everything from uh, all the way from the prequal all the way down to the servicing on the mortgage product. And, now, and pre-qualif- means pre-qualification, pre-qualification, so when someone's shopping for a mortgage, yeah. And that versus, you know, out in the broker community, typically what they do is they, they'll work through a third party and that to be able to funnel the loans through. In other words, in that uh, they might uh, uh, put together a loan with the intention of that they're going to run it through, um, you know, another bank or possibly a mortgage company. And I remember, you know, I've been involved in several different types of mortgage companies over the years. And I remember when I had my own mortgage company, we were a mortgage broker. And the thing we always aspired to be, Steve, is we always aspired to be a mortgage banker. Never quite got there, never got around to it. But the thing with being a mortgage banker is that then you have a warehouse line. And so you fund loans directly off your own warehouse line, and that gives it gives you more control of the financing, right? Is that the benefit to the consumer? You know, that's that's absolutely correct. Um, you know, being able to fund the product and that um, and utilizing those warehouse lines and that it just it's a you know it's a big step for anybody to take, and that so so yeah, it's, it's a great way to be able to do it. Allows us to fund a lot more products, and we've got several. I think we we have three or four pretty big warehouse lines. And when I'm talking, we're talking, you know, eight figures and above. Wow, those are big warehouse lines. They're yeah, huge. Yeah. Big, big company for sure. Yeah. Well, Steve, what are some of the myths and misconceptions and misinformations that you hear out there from your competitors and, and just kind of researching the competition? And then, you know, let's drill down and talk about how people can have a more successful financing experience. It's challenging for investors to get financing nowadays, but you know, in a way, that's what makes that's what makes it such a great opportunity. Because if you're willing to jump through the hoops, other people may not be willing to, and that lessens the supply of rental property out there for tenants, thus increasing your rent and lowering your vacancy and just making your properties perform better all in all. Well, you know, I guess where there's there's really two buckets that I see as far as borrowers. You know, you get those those entry level borrowers that just want to get in, they want to get started, and then you've got the other borrowers over on the other side of the uh, you know other side of the fence, or they're experienced people. Now, the entry level borrower, you know, their first question is is how do I do this? How do I get in to start buying investment properties? And that's where somebody like myself is going to come in. What I'm going to typically do, and that is when a borrower uh, contacts me. I want to try and find out where they want to go, you know, what their not only their short-term but their long-term long-term goals are. At that point in time, what I'm going to instruct them to do is to go to my website and have them complete my online loan application. With that, uh, once that's done, then what that allows me to do is is uh, download the application, pull a credit report, run it on on Fannie Mae's desktop underwriter. So now what I'm now I've got a blueprint. Once I receive that approval back, I've got a blueprint as far as the documentation. Then once I get that documentation back, what I'm going to do is I'm going to review that to make sure that everything fits in line, get with the borrower, kind of go over the uh, the approval process, uh, you know, reserve requirements, because uh, typically on investment properties, they're going to have to have a little bit of cash and that for those reserves. And then, of course, it's always nice to have a little... Uh, when I want to say, I'm going to use the term slush fund, you know, in case a appraisal doesn't come in or, or just, you know, for whatever reason. It's, it's always nice to have a little bit of a cushion to fall back on. And so that's really, you know, really where I, where I start with my borrowers. You know, some of the areas that I see where there, there, there's some misinformation out there is let's talk about rental income. 
um, you know, when somebody buys a property and we don't have a two-year landlord history experience, typically that is a uh, um, and it's an investor overlay. So what it allows me to do, if a borrower is buying a $50,000 property and they've got a mortgage for $400 a month, and let's say the property rents for $750, I can utilize seven, 75% of that amount. And that basically what that does is that pretty much washes the payment, or it may even show some positive cash flow from day one. You know, in addition to that, um, it doesn't even have to be rented at the time. So if the appraiser, if the appraiser, when he's out there inspecting the property, the property is vacant, they'll provide in that appraisal a uh, comparative rent schedule, which if the appraiser says it's worth 850, again, I can utilize that 75%. So that really, you know, for that borrower that, that wants to get in, you know, wants to get in, uh, you know, as far as buying properties, it's very beneficial to them. Okay, so first of all, we're talking about beginning investors here. So the, maybe the sort of the typical beginning investor, they owe, you know, they own their own house, and they're looking to purchase their first couple, three, four, five rental properties. And when they do this, I mean, what is it going to take for them to qualify? The rental income, the projected rental income on those properties will count toward qualifying, right? Correct. That's absolutely correct. Now, will it count at 100% or at 75% or some imputed vacancy rate? 75%. Okay, so that's what you were referring to earlier then. Yeah, and then I go go a step farther because let's face it, you know, the majority of my investors are out of state. So I know that they're going to have a property management agreement. So I'll hit them another 7 to 10 percent just, uh, you know, just to take that into take that into account. And again, it's just an added buffer because like I say, I know that 95% of all my investors are buying out of state. And I know that's an added cost. And that's something that Fannie doesn't factor in. Okay, so just make, let's make sure people understand this. So in other words, just for simplicity of example, if you are purchasing a rental property and that, that income property is projected to rent for $1,000 per month, the bank is only going to assume that you're going to receive $750 per month. In other words, 25% less than your projection on that property when they're qualifying you in terms of your what's called DTI or debt to income ratio, right? So can we run through an example on this? Sure, you bet. And then, so let's just say, well, let's just take that same example. So what you would do in that is, is it rents for is it rents for a thousand dollars. Now Fannie tells me Fannie Mae because we sell all of our loans directly to Fannie Mae that I've got to knock 25% right off the top for that. So that's 750. I'm going to knock another seven to 10 percent off because, like I say, they're getting, they're going to have a property management agreement. So in theory, let's just say I'm going to, you know, all practical purposes in that, I'm going to utilize 60 65 percent of that amount. That's going to put them at 600 and uh, 650 dollars a month in rent. Now, if they were to have a mortgage of say 75 thousand dollars, they would have a total payment of 560 dollars and one cent. So what I would do is I'd subtract that 560 from the 650, which is going to be $90. And so they'd actually show a positive cash flow of $90. So, so that's the way it works. So what happens here is unlike a home mortgage, I mean, if, if people, people need to have extra income to, in order to start buying the income properties because the bank is assuming you're receiving a lot less than you really are. So each property sort of less, it becomes really, in the bank size, it becomes a debt, even though you may have positive cash flow on it. If you don't have more than 25% positive cash flow, then the bank will think, oh, this property's losing money, right? 
Correct. Yeah. Okay. So that's a good way to look at it. Okay. Now, what about credit scoring? How are we dealing with credit scoring nowadays? Well, there's a, there's there's two elements on the credit scoring. When you have one to four finance properties, you have to have a minimum credit score of 620. That's not that's not too difficult. No, no, that's not. Now, correct me. You know, you know, here's a reality: at 620, and that you're going to probably have some, you know, some derogatory information. So that's not absolutely a guarantee that you're going to get approved. Right. But so in other words, now, just explain that, though. So what you could have is you could have a 620 or above FICO score, which would qualify you on the score category. Correct. But if there's something derogatory on the report itself, which there would be if it's 620, because that's not a super high score. If there's something on the uh, derogatory in the report, they can kick it out for that reason, right? For example, if you got your score, say you had a foreclosure, and you got your score back up to 640, which, you know, you're moving up there, but there's still that foreclosure on the record, what would that do? Would they give you the loan, or how far back does the foreclosure need to be? The foreclosure's got to be seven years. Seven years, not three, huh? It's got to be seven years from the date that it was actually foreclosed upon. And that to be able to buy another property with Fannie Mae. Okay, now I hear conflicting numbers on that. I hear three years. And then it also depends. Maybe they've used one of those credit repair services and they've been able to remove a foreclosure on their credit report. But let's assume it's on there. Let's assume it's on the report. You're saying seven years. I've been told three. Who's right? Well, seven years is a, seven years is a number. The only exception to the rule, and, that, and, and this has to do with foreclosure, is on a short sale. Okay, so a short sale, how long in the past can that be? Two years. Oh, not so bad. Okay. Yeah, it's not so bad. But seven years in that, the, uh, I don't know where people come up with three years. I mean, FHA is still only at two years on their foreclosure. On the conventional, seven years, no exception. And so that's conventional loans versus FHA loans? Correct. All right. Talk more about scoring and, and derogatory remarks. Any, anything else? No. Well, we uh, talked about foreclosure. What about a bankruptcy? Uh, bankruptcy, you have to have four years. So four years beyond a bankruptcy uh, for FHA and conventional or? No, uh, FHA is only two years. Two years. Okay. So FHA makes it easier than conventional financing, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. But the, uh, the FHA is not going to be utilized to buy an investment property. Right. Can't, yeah. That's only for, for primary, uh, primary residents. That's for homeowners. Okay. All correct. right. Good. Go ahead. Tell us more. Uh, the other, the other element is once you go past four finance properties, the score increases 100 points. So it's a 720 minimum score once you go above four finance properties. Okay, so so the four finance properties now, there's been conflicting information about the limit. Is it 10 financed properties? Is that the limit? That is the Fannie Mae limit of 10 finance properties. Now, what that does not include, that does not include any commercial properties, bare land. They only count in the mix one to four family units. Okay, now, does it matter if those have been financed by Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or is it just if they're one to four units, which is considered a residential property, and they're financed by anybody? So even if you bought one and the seller carried back a note, or, you know, we have some special deals around the country in different areas where we've got community banks that are smaller community banks that are making some pretty attractive portfolio loans, does it matter if, say, one of those community banks financed it or the seller carried back paper? You know, that's a, that's a really good question because there's a lot of confusion out there. What constitutes a, you know, that finance property with the Fannie Mae limit? 
If there's financing on it, irregardless whether or not it's Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, if it's private financing, community bank, as long as it's got a mortgage on it, it's counted as a finance property. Okay, so here's the other thing. And this is where it all gets so murky, folks, by the way. You know, a lot of lenders will say, well, if you had a seller carry back or some sort of unconventional financing, it doesn't count because maybe it doesn't show up on your credit report. So that's like another layer of murkiness, right, Steve? Yeah, it's absolutely correct in that. But, you know, if they've had it for a while, guess what I'm going to pick it up at is on their tax returns. Right, right. They'll because they, the write, they write the interest off. Good. Okay. Now, what else do people need to know? If someone, uh, let's do kind of another example here. Maybe this is the borrower. This is a borrower who is doing pretty well. They're making $15,000 a month. And maybe you would just want to have your software open or your calculator to go over this example with me. They make $15,000 a month and it's a couple and one of the spouses does not work. One works, makes 15000 They've got a house payment of $3,500 on a primary residence. And then they've got two car payments of $500 each. And their credit score is 720 or above. So they've got good credit. How many properties can a person like this buy? Well, it depends how much the properties are in terms of investment properties, of course. But because that that 25% imputed vacancy rate, that falsely imputed vacancy rate, starts to kind of destroy or, or wither away at their debt-to-income ratio, right? How can they do? Can they get up to 10, you think? Yeah. Well, you know, the other, the other uh, determining factor that I'm going to look at here are assets. Because once they, uh, um, there's, there's asset reserves that they have to have when they own investment properties. Now, what I'll do is I'll define that. Between one and four finance properties, they have to have six months principal interest, taxes, and insurance on the subject property. Okay. So if they, they've got, you said if they're above four, right? No, that's, that's one to four. Oh, one to four. So if they've got four finance properties or anything less than four finance properties, they've got to have six months PITI, principal interest taxes and insurance, in reserves in the bank, right? Now, does if it's in a brokerage account or does that yeah, have to be I bank? Can, I can utilize that. So we can get pretty we, – we, we've got some flexibility as far as the reserves. All right. They've got to have the six months PITI on the subject. And then if they own other investment properties and or a second home, they have to have two months PITI on each one of those. All right. So two months, not, two months on each one not, plus six months on the new one that they're buying to get them above, well, no, but they're still below four, right? Finance properties. Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they can, let's say hypothetically a person owns their primary, they've got uh, a second home and two rental properties. So on the subject property, I'd have that six months, and then I'd have to have two months on their second home and two months on their additional rental property in reserves. The primary residence, now this is where, this is where, where I do see, I see some lenders include the primary in there. That is not a Fannie Mae requirement. That's a lender overlay. What's a lender overlay? Well, this is where Fannie Mae, you know, they'll write the guidelines. And what lenders will do is, is, is they'll say, well, that's fine. You know, let me give you an example. 10 finance properties. We're not comfortable with 10 finance properties. We'll only get a four. So we'll restrict it at four. You know, they have a Fannie Mae doesn't have a two-year landlord history experience requirement. Investor may say, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not comfortable with that. I want to see one. So they can always make them more restrictive. Investor meaning the lender. See, when you yeah, say investor, the people oh. listening think they're investors. But when you yeah. say investor, you mean the lender, the person I'm looking, owning them. I'm thinking of the lender. That's correct. What else do people need to know? You know, that, the, uh, that done correctly, 
the uh, ability to buy these investment properties attainable. They just have to get with somebody like myself um, that's going to be able to help them through this financial maze. And I say that as a maze because when I look at lending right now, we're back to lending what it was 20 years ago. Now we've got some, you know, obviously we have some tools in lending that, that assist us that we didn't have 20 years ago, automated underwriting. So, so, you know, those are great tools for us to have. But people get scared. They don't think, they hear all these rumors that, that you know, financing is not attainable. It's tough to get a loan. You know, I tell people, I say, as long as you pay your bills, you've got, you've got money in the bank and you've got a job and that there's a good chance that you can do this. And, you know, people shouldn't be scared. If you never ask, you'll never know. Right. Steve, that raises two questions. I want to talk to you about self-employed borrowers, because that's a huge segment of our economy nowadays, of course. And I also want to talk to you about, I, I, I mentioned and asked you about the more serious credit issues, bankruptcies and foreclosures. We did that. But what about more minor credit issues, like some late payments, medical bills, things like that? They're, gonna, they're obviously going to have some impact on credit. I see a lot of a, a lot of people in that that will have some. You know, they've had a, late, a couple of late payments a couple of years ago. I've even even seen them where they've had uh, some more recent ones in like the the year that they're trying to apply for financing. A lot of it depends on the number of payments, the severity of the payments. In other words, were they 30 days or were they 90 days? That could have some effect on the underwriting decision. Um, I have yet to see it disqualify anybody. You know, unless they've got. Uh, you know, I'll take. Well, let me let me recant that. Uh, I've seen some people out there like with their student loans because that's that's become pretty big and where they'll fall way behind under student loans. You know, that could definitely get it to where we could not get an, get an approved eligible. What about self-employed borrowers? If if they're or self-employed or in a commission, they're employed, but it's like a commission-only position or it's really maybe a base salary or a commission, whichever is higher, and they want to be qualified based on the commission amount. And say, for example, this borrower, say they're new, they've only been in this business or this career or with this company, let's distinguish all of those, for maybe six months. Do they have to have a two-year history? Are they going to average their income for two years, or how does that work? Well, let's, let's first address the person. That if a person is, is straight commission where they don't receive any base, I'm going to have to have two years of returns in that, or, or you know, two years to show that they're in, uh, they've been receiving commissions, and then I have to average those over two okay, years. Okay, so it's going to be based on two years' tax returns. So if your first year in the business, you didn't do very well, but in your second year, if you did great, then it will be averaged over the 24 months, correct? Yeah, correct. And the other thing is, is sometimes you get a little latitude. I mean, I might have one full year of tax returns and maybe we're in, you know, month number 10 or 11. There's some discretion there as long as, as long as the income remains consistent. You know, as long as it keeps going up, you're probably all right. Now, the, the question there is, what if they change jobs, but they're in the same industry? They're not going to start the two-year clock all over, right? No, they will, they will not. As a matter of fact, I had a gentleman that, that did just that. Same type of business. He just moved from one company to the next. All we did is we wanted to see 30 days worth of pay stubs and, or his commission schedules to make sure that his income wasn't going down. What about a business? What about someone starting a business? Uh, you know, business, typically, uh, typically you're going to want to see two years of returns on any self-employed individual. And, you know, somebody like myself, and that it really it's a matter of going back, looking at the returns on a self-employed individual and asking the right questions. Because that's one of the things that I see a lot of our competition doesn't do, is ask the questions for a self-employed. 
I'll give you an example. Had a borrower that comes in, uh, you know, he's self-employed, he's got a lot of credit. And so when I, when I look, look at his, his adjusted income, he doesn't qualify. Well, a lot of people would stop right there. I go a step farther in that I know, like I know a lot of self-employed individuals, tell me what you're writing off on the business. And nine out of ten times, every bill they have on their personal credit report, they write off through their business and expenses. And as long as we can get the documentation, and what would I would what I would request is probably 12 months worth of canceled checks to show that they're actually paying those bills through their business. I was going to ask you about that because one of the big things that business owners do, Kiyosaki talks about this in the Rich Dad books, is that you get the you get the benefit of spending the money on a pre-tax basis. Well, maybe I'm saying that wrong. You spend the money take a deduction for spending it, and then you pay your taxes based on the net, the adjusted gross income. And a lot of expenses, entrepreneurs do find a way to put those through their businesses. And so that makes their income lower, but really their income is higher because they're getting the lifestyle benefit of all these things. If they, you know, they always buy themselves a company car, maybe two, (laughs) you know, (laughs) maybe there's even a, maybe there's even a company yacht, who knows, a company plane. And these are things that they, if if they weren't self-employed, they would have to pay for outside of that and pay for on an after-tax basis. Yeah. And again, and it is back to, and that's the responsibility of the lender to get with his client and having that experience level working with self-employed individuals is to be able to go back and ask those right questions and say, okay, so I know, I know what you do. Now, if you can provide the documentation, we're probably good to go. I mean, I've got a guy that makes uh, his you know, net receipts are 160 grand a year. He exp- he's able to expense everything, his house, his cars, his credit cards, everything. He showed he's making 1200 bucks a month. Yeah, and that's not going to qualify him for anything. What did he do? Were you able to get him financing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's, he's on his third property. Okay, good. Talk to us. Did we cover the self-employed and the commission-only issue pretty well, or is there more you want to say about that? You know, and I think what it really comes down to is, is uh, especially with your self-employed borrowers, because they have a tendency to be a little bit more complex borrowers, is just being able to go back again, ask the right questions, be able to go through their tax returns. You know, there, there's items that you can pull out of tax returns that you can add back for uh, for income, i.e., give an example of that of depletion and depreciation. You can look at that. And then if you get some of these some of these other borrowers that are business owners, when you look at their, their balance sheets, there's items that, that underwriters specifically look for. Again, for, as a lender, you have to be able to go back and say that, okay, so I know you're looking at that, but here's why they have this. And so, again, it's just a matter of being able to do a a really thorough job analyzing the tax returns. And that's where experience comes in, doesn't it? Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about those credit repair agencies and things like that, people recovering from financial hardship. Certainly, there's a lot of that that's gone on in the past few years. And there are a lot of uh, these places out there that make a lot of promises. And I've, I've had one of those companies on my show a long time ago and just wanted to get your thoughts on how those things work, if they work at all. You know, they do. And you're, you're absolutely right. There's, you know, and, it's, and it's like our business and that there's a lot of people that, that they'll promise the world, but can they deliver? And you see the same thing within the, within the credit repair agencies. You know, that in itself, that's a very, what do I want to say, kind of complex environment. I mean, it's not as simple as what, every, what everybody thinks. There's a lot of value into it. Again, if you get with the right company. 
and and the right individual. So we've had a, and and there's some things that I can do on my side that don't require credit repair. I mean, uh, um, you know, occasionally something will be placed on a borrower's uh, credit report um, in air. Well, it's easy for us to just say, okay, so we see this. The borrower said this is not mine. They go back to the original creditor. They get a letter. They provide us with that letter. I can get it removed. It's only when you get into the stuff that that's really deep that you want to go out there and look at credit repair. And the thing I would say is don't pay big, huge upfront fees. Those are where the scammers are. You know, if it's more than a few hundred dollars, if they want to charge you two, three thousand dollars, I would say that's probably too much run for the hills. And it's probably worth doing a Google search on the person's name, the company's name problem is there's so many ways to hide from this kind of stuff, but it just doesn't hurt to do take a look at it. or get a referral from someone you work with, someone you believe is reputable and do it that way. You know, what do you think, Steve? Yeah, yeah and that's absolutely correct. I mean, you know, when you come to me, I mean, my, my job is to gather information for my clients and I do work and I work with a, a couple of different companies with credit repairs. We've had good success with them. And they don't, again, they don't charge a lot of upfront fees. They're, uh, you know, if, they, if they've got to work with them for a period of time, their fees are really, really affordable for the clients. But you're absolutely correct. If you get that person that says, I need $500, $1,000 front, that's probably turn, time to turn tail and run. Oh, see, I would say 500 is probably okay. But if it's more than that, you know, I mean, they're going to charge you something, right? I mean, oh, yeah, gonna, how much gonna... do some of the agencies that you work with charge? You know, they'll start, you know, again, Annette, it's going to, it's going to vary from client to client. Yeah, 500 is going to be probably a little bit on the higher end for a more complex client, but a lot of it is the, is the depth of repair that they, that they see to be done. I mean, I had one of my credit, uh, you know, customers come back. I suggested that he talk to the credit repair person. The credit repair person called the customer and called me, got me on a conference call and says, you don't need me. I'll tell you what to do. And you can do it without me. See, that's the kind of that's the kind of people that I want on my team. Sure, sure. And one of the people that you work with in the credit repair world, we put out a request to get that person on the show here. So look for that on, a, on an upcoming episode. Just if you just find these guys on the internet, a lot of them are total scam artists. So be careful. I think that I think the best thing is a professional referral. Here's one more question I want to ask you, just in closing. How long does it take to close a loan? I mean, are you getting them done in 30 days or less, or is it about 45? days for an investor. Now, I'd say, you know, 30 days is probably a pretty good, uh, you know, pretty good way to gauge it as far as timing. Now, of course, there's always exceptions. There's all these things that can come up. Typically, you know, where I see the majority of the items come up that, that could possibly delay closing is, is when they start to do the, uh, the rehab process, the remodel on the property. And so that can delay things a little bit. But I tell you, between 30 and 45 days, that's doable. You know, that, that, that really is. What happens when you start crossing state lines? Like, are there any funny little quirks that you want to mention going from state to state? We do business in many, many states and just always look for the best markets in which to be investing at any given time. But a lot of real estate laws and customs are, are sort of state by state. What do you see when you, you go across state borders? You know, I haven't really seen anything that's really where, where it's really impacted my clients. You know, it's like anybody, like, you know, the state of Washington, for example, the state of Washington is a community property state. Some of the other states that you buy property in aren't. So I think this is where when the, uh, when the clients are making those moves, they have, an, you know, they have an attorney in their home state to where they can get it set up as far as asset protection, that sort of thing, when they start crossing out these state lines. 
But on my side, the Fannie Mae guidelines are the same in Washington as they are in Tennessee. Let me take a brief pause. We'll be back in just a minute. Did you know that you can call into the Creating Wealth Show? Yes, you can call me and talk to me direct for later broadcast on the show. The number is 949-200-8009 or via Skype, Jason Hartman, ROI. Please make sure you have a good connection when you call, get your questions answered, participate in the show, and share your experiences with other investors. Call in 949-200-8009 or Skype, Jason Hartman, ROI, and participate in the Creating Wealth Show. Steve, last question for you, and this time I really mean it. It is the last question. <laughs> okay. What are your thoughts about the investment market? I mean, you've been in the business well over 20 years now, 25 years, a quarter century. So you're like me. You're a veteran. You've been around a long time. What are your thoughts about the opportunities for investors nowadays? What are clients saying to you? What is their outlook? What is your outlook? You know, of course, you get a lot of people that will run around and, and talk about how bad the real estate market is right now. And that, you know, anybody that buys investments are, are, are making bad decisions. You know, that's really contrary because this is the time they should be buying. I, I say that simply because of the fact I see so many of my clients do so well on their properties. You know, they, they buy these properties, you know, they're making money right off the bat. It's a great time. They're, they're affordable. And, you know, when clients tell me when they talk about these, you know, the, the bad time, I want to point them back to the mid-2000s when the market was at, was at a high. And you had a lot of people that were buying properties at the auctions and the foreclosures. They bought, the, you know, they bought high, and guess what? The market tanked. And so a lot of those people that, that made those errors back during that time are the people's, you know, are, are the inventory right now that investors are buying because they made some bad decisions in buying times. It's a great time to be buying. Rates are, you know, rates are very conducive for investors buying. I mean, they're, they're mid fours right now on 30-year money. I mean, you can get down to almost 4% on a 15-year note. I mean, what an unbelievable opportunity. You know, the great thing for us as investors, Steve, is that we outsource our debt to tenants. You know, investors don't pay their own debts. Tenants pay it for them. It's a great great scenario. And right now, even if we had a property sit vacant for 30 years, if it was vacant for three decades, I say with a real rate of inflation, we'd still be getting paid to borrow that money. Because if you ask me, the real rate of inflation now is about 9 to 10%. And right. if you can borrow in the fours, you're getting paid to borrow the day you borrow. And then if you don't pay your own debt, if you outsource the debt to the tenant, you're getting paid a ton of money to borrow that money. So mortgages become a huge asset, don't they? Yeah, they, they really do. And the more and more people, you know, you know, we go back to where I was talking to people that, that may hear this. Now's the time to buy. I mean, the, the market itself, and that there, there's just a ton of opportunities out there for people to buy these investment properties. The financing is there. What they need to do is just take that step and ask and see if they can do it. Good stuff. Well, Steve, thanks so much. People can get a hold of you through any of our investment counselors. Just visit jasonhartman.com and start communicating with one of our investment counselors, and we will put you in touch with Steve and his team. You've got a big team there, and you just run a good operation. So thanks so much for joining us today, Steve. Thank you very much, Jason. Here's your chance to catch up on all of those Creating Wealth shows that you've missed. There's a three-book set with shows 1 through 60, all digital download. You save $94 by buying this three-book set. Go ahead and get these advanced strategies for wealth creation. 
For more details, go to jasonhartman.com. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company, all rights reserved. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please visit www.hartmanmedia.com or email media at hartmanmedia.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and the host is acting on behalf of Platinum Properties Investor Network, Inc., exclusively.